Hey everyone, this is Cody Turner. In this episode of the podcast, I speak with my friend and colleague Drew Johnson. Drew is a PhD student in philosophy at the University of Connecticut, specializing in metaethics, epistemology, and truth. For his PhD dissertation, Drew is writing in metaethics. In particular, he's developing what's called a neo-expressivist account for thinking about morality. In this episode, though, Drew and I do not discuss his neo-expressivist views of morality. Instead, we talk about a forthcoming paper of Drew's, which is on the topic of philosophical skepticism. I forget the journal that the paper is being published in, but I'll attach the link to the paper once it is officially published. And I'll also attach a link to Drew's website in the podcast description, where you can go to find out more about the interesting research that he's conducting. I really enjoyed this conversation. I always hate listening to my voice when I'm editing these conversations, as you might imagine. I still think I have a lot of work to do in terms of becoming a skillful conversationalist. But nevertheless, just to give a little preamble to the content here, a philosophical skeptic is someone who questions the possibility of knowledge. So, for example, can you know whether the external world actually exists and that you are not actually living in the matrix? Can you know that other minds exist and that other people aren't just figments in your imagination? or characters inside your own dream? Can you know that morality exists, and that it's actually wrong, in an objective sense, to torture innocent children for fun? In his paper, Drew provides a solution to philosophical skepticism, in particular a solution to the problem of moral skepticism. So put those existential crises on hold, ladies and gentlemen, for I now present to you, Drew Johnson. Welcome to Tent Talks on the Shelter from the Storm Podcast Network, a place to talk the rain away with your host, Cody Turner. There's a storm coming, Mr. Wayne. All right, I'm here with my colleague, Drew Johnson, fellow PhD student at the University of Connecticut. Thanks for doing this, man. I appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me. I think it's a cool podcast uh, that you've got going on here. Thanks, man. So I thought, so we're going to talk about a paper that you wrote on skepticism and maybe some of your other views on ethics. That's what you're writing your dissertation in. But I usually start these podcasts just by asking my guests, at least if they're into philosophy, I ask them, how did you get into philosophy? Mm-hmm. I don't just ask anyone that. <laughs> but yeah, so how did you get into philosophy? How did you find yourself in grad school? I got into philosophy because I was pissed off at Plato. Uh, I took an intro <laughs> class in undergrad and... Uh, we started talking about Plato's Republic, and I remember reading his views on censorship, uh, and they made me very upset. And I realized, right. though, that I was, although I was upset with Plato, I was more um, intellectually engaged with that issue than I was with any of my other classes. Mm-hmm. So I realized that I cared about this more than I cared about, say, chemistry. And so that's kind of what set me off. So when you uh, say down the path towards philosophy, right? So when you say his views on censorship, you're talking about his views on government that he puts forth in the republic, right, because he was very anti-democratic in a lot of ways, and he thought that uh, poetry and other forms of literature literature should be censored because they can kind of excite parts of the soul that shouldn't be excited, and that can kind of uh, undermine rationality. That's right. Something like yeah, that. That's right. And you just thought that was BS. Yeah. Free speech reigns supreme. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> I, felt, I feel similarly when reading Plato. Mm-hmm. What was it? There's this movie. Um, 
think it's I think it's called Divergent or something. It's one of these mo- recent science fiction movies. But the kind of government that's depicted in the movie is eerily similar to the ideal utopian government that Plato put forth in the Republic. Mm. And I just thought it was really interesting. Mm. I'll send you the link to the movie if you haven't watched mm-hmm. it. Um, so when was that? That was in high. That was in college. That's right. Undergrad. Yeah. Yeah. Freshman. Uh, second year. Uh, second year uh, undergrad I was still trying to decide what to major in I went in having no idea like uh, I just kind of showed up at college and thought I'll see what interests me yeah Um, and it turned out to be philosophy how did you find your way into ethics as a specialty because that's now really what you're focusing on as you Mm -hmm. are writing your dissertation yeah that's right that is what I'm focusing on um I'm not really sure how I got into ethics. It just, um, really, I think one of my, philosophically, my first, my first love philosophically actually was the problem of skepticism. Mm. Um, But then it did switch, and now I'm more and more interested in ethics and the intersection between those two uh, topics. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, uh, I I can't really identify what made it switch. It just seemed that talking about ethical issues was, in a sense, um, it seemed very important to do. Um, right. Right. So I guess there was a sense of urgency there. Yeah, definitely one of the areas of philosophy that has a clear pragmatic importance on the world. That's right. But yeah, let's jump right into the problem of skepticism, which yeah. is the paper we're going to be discussing of yours. I feel like it's a good topic for people who aren't acquainted with philosophy to kind of get them into philosophy because it's something that uh, everyone, I feel like, has thought about even if they haven't framed it in terms mm-hmm. that philosophers frame it. So I guess what, what is the relevant problem of skepticism here? I guess we, so you, in your paper you distinguish between uh, different kinds of skepticism. There's radical skepticism and then there's what you call domain-specific skepticism. Mm-hmm. So I guess radical skepticism is the kind of skepticism people usually think about when you're talking about it. So, so what is radical skepticism? Right. So radical epistemological skepticism, I think the best way to get a sense of what that's about is I don't, um, if you've ever seen the movie The Matrix, yeah. that has a, a perfect explanation of what radical skepticism is. So the, the thought is supposed to be, um, well, most people think that they know a lot of things, Right? So I think I know that there's a table right here. I think I know that we're in the library. right? Um, all these things I think I know. Um, but then consider uh, something like The Matrix, right? Uh, where Neo in the film um, is actually uh, hooked up to some kind of supercomputer that tells his brain that he's actually in the real world. Mm-hmm. Right, so the the brain, his brain is being manipulated in such a way to make Neo believe that he's walking around the city and engaging in all sorts of activities, when really he's you know somewhere else in a vat uh, where he's been his whole life. Mm-hmm. It's and a simulation, essentially. Exactly. Yeah. Right. And so the the problem is, you think you know that there's a table here, but how could you know that? because you can't rule out the possibility that you're actually just a brain in a vat being stimulated to think that there's a table there. Because even if you were just a brain in the vat, all of the experiences that you're having now would be exactly the same. Right. 
Right. Okay. And so you can be, you can adopt. So yeah, I guess it's important to distinguish skepticism in ordinary sense of the term from skepticism in this philosophical sense. Because usually when someone says, oh, he's a skeptic, what they mean is, oh, he's dubious about that. He's a very skeptical personality. He's always dubious right. about any claim that you put forth. But skepticism in the philosophical sense is a lot stronger. It's not just that if you're a skeptic in the philosophical sense, you're dubious about something. It's that you're asserting that you cannot positively know whether that thing is true or not. That's right. So, yeah, in, in an ordinary sense, you might think that a skeptic is someone who perhaps has a very high standard for justification. Right? If you tell a skeptic something, right. you have to have a lot of evidence for mm -hmm. them to believe you. Mm -hmm. In the philosophical context, when we're talking about skepticism, a skeptic is someone who is going to say, no matter what evidence you give me, it's not going to be enough for me to know what you're trying to tell me. Right. And so I guess one question is, is there any limit to what we can adopt a skeptical attitude about, right? It's like the one that you, I guess the most classical one is the external world skepticism, right? The external right. world can completely be an illusion and we could just be brains in a vats, but there are all kinds of other, putting aside domain-specific skepticism, there are all kinds of other skepticism as well, right? You can be a skeptic about other minds. That's right. right? You could just be a figment of my imagination and I could be the only mind that exists. You can be a skeptic about the self, right? Right. Hume famously said when he introspects and tries to look for his self all he finds is perceptions and memories that are associated with the self there is no unitary being there is there any limit to skepticism well i think uh one of the crucial points i want to make in the paper is that in a very important sense skepticism is limited there are important limits to skepticism but just in terms of like uh what sorts of topics or areas or what sorts of um, ideas you might be a skeptic about, I don't think there's any limit there, right? So I think you, there's a lot of people who are skeptical about religion. You might also be skeptical about uh, morality, which is the topic of uh, the paper. Uh, you could be skeptical about other minds, as you say, mm -hmm. right? I mean, there are even people who are skeptical about climate change. Right. So it, it seems that there's no in principle limit on what you could be skeptical about. Although Descartes famously mm -hmm. perhaps gave us uh, the only example of something that you could not be skeptical about, namely that you are currently thinking. That, yeah, right. that's what I was thinking. Yeah. Just your like cogito ergo sum, right? I think, therefore I am. Although he kind of smuggles in the eye, right? Yeah. He did. Yeah. You can be skeptical about the self, but you can't be skeptical about the fact that you're currently having the perception that you're having. Like there is some appearance mm -hmm. and that that's indubitable. Mm -hmm. That seems like one thing that's just completely Yeah. 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 I can't doubt that I'm thinking about something right now. Um, because even doubting is a kind of thinking. Right. About something. One example that I like to use is you can think that you're skiing or playing basketball, but not actually be skiing or playing basketball, but you can't think that you're thinking and not actually be thinking. Exactly. Um, okay, so yeah, let's approach your paper here. So yeah, so domain-specific skepticism is just skepticism, not in a broad universal sense, but applied to a specific That's right. domain. Yeah, so where radical skepticism uh, is the claim that we cannot know anything at all, except perhaps that we're currently thinking, domain-specific skepticism is domain just about one area of uh, thought. Uh, mm -hmm. So, for instance, um, 
climate change deniers. That's a domain-specific skepticism about climate science. Mm -hmm. um, another example would be atheists, or more appropriately, agnostics would be skeptics about the domain of religion. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, the, the real difference between radical skepticism and domain-specific skepticism is just the scope of what you doubt. Mm -hmm. Right. The radical skeptic has the largest scope possible. Domain-specific skepticism is just about one area. Right. And in your paper, you're focusing on moral skepticism. That's right. So what is moral skepticism in a few words? Good. Uh, moral skepticism, as I'm understanding it, uh, is the claim that we cannot know any moral judgment to be true. Uh, so, for mm -hmm. instance, um, well... First of all, to motivate moral skepticism, I think it's uh, the best way to, to see why someone might accept that view is to think about the sorts of disagreements that we have, right? So this is a way in which uh, morality is often taken to be different from other areas like science. You know, in science, eventually the hope is scientists converge on one set of ideas that they all agree, right? We're getting at the truth here. Mm -hmm. But then when it comes to moral uh, morality, we don't seem to have that same sort of convergence. Uh, people get into really heated debates about abortion, right, about the death penalty. Um, some of these fundamental moral problems that we just do not seem to be able to resolve. Right. And that might lead one to start to become skeptical of morality as a whole, right? You might think, hey, look at the scientists. They're making a lot of progress. They're discovering things about the world. That shows that we're getting closer to the truth about the world. Mm -hmm. Then you turn and look at morality and you say, hey, you know, people keep disagreeing. There's disagreement across cultures, even within a culture. Um, and so it's just a mess. Maybe we don't know anything at all when it comes to morality because there's no convergence, there's no consensus. The fact that there's so much actual disagreement suggests that there are no universal truths about morality. But or it could lead to skepticism in that way. But the actual disagreement could be founded upon an, a factual disagreement, right? This is something that we talked about in the moral realism seminar. That's right, right. yeah. So it's not, it, what appears to be a difference in moral beliefs is actually can be boiled down to an underlying difference in what people think the relevant facts are. And if their knowledge of the relevant facts were to become aligned, their moral beliefs would become aligned as well. Or at least that's one hypothesis as to how you could that's eradicate right. the actual disagreement. That's right. So like an example of that would be if you're thinking about the death penalty, for instance. Um, maybe the reason why some people think the death penalty is morally permissible is that they think having the death penalty will deter future crime. Right, mm -hmm. So they might think, yeah, if we have the death penalty, then uh, that's going to, in a sense, scare people away from committing a crime like murder because they know they could be killed as a result. Mm -hmm. And so if you think that the death penalty deters future crime, that's a reason for um, putting it into place. Right. But that's a, that's a factual. Uh, that's something that's factual. Right. Does Is it the going death to deter in fact deter crime? Yeah, that's something that we could do a study on, get some research on, try to figure out, does the death penalty in fact deter crime? Oh, yeah, that's and, a great example. Yeah, once we settle that, then we will come to an agreement about whether or not we should have the death penalty. Right. Right. 
So yeah, there isn't any actual difference in the ethical systems of the people who have different views about the death penalty per se. Mm -hmm. That's right. So two people could agree that if the death penalty deter deters crime, then we should have it. Mm -hmm. But then they might disagree. One might think that the death penalty does deter crime, and the other might think that, in fact, it doesn't. And so that would be what looks like an ethical disagreement, but really it's just a disagreement about whether the death penalty, in fact, deters crime. And so that you just have to do some more research on and settle that issue. Right. Yeah. Right. But there might actually be disagreement if that can't be boiled down. And if there is, then that suggests moral skepticism. But as you note, there are different kinds of moral skepticism, right? So moral skepticism, and I think this is important to point out, moral skepticism, as you clarify in the paper, it doesn't presuppose, it doesn't necessarily presuppose moral nihilism, right? So moral nihilism is just the idea that there are no objective moral truths at all, right? Morality just doesn't exist in an ontological sense. That's one kind of moral skepticism. But as you note, there are other kinds of moral skepticism, too, mm -hmm. that are realist about morality, right? You can be a moral realist and also be a moral skeptic. So I thought maybe it would be helpful for you just to distinguish some of the kinds of right. moral skepticism. Right, yeah. Yeah, uh, so, right, I, I distinguish, I think it's four different kinds of moral skepticism. And Yeah. Right, so one of them, the big one, and I think this is perhaps the kind of skepticism most people think of when they think of moral skepticism, is actually moral nihilism, mm -hmm. which is just the idea that there is no such thing as right and wrong, right? There are no true moral claims at all, mm -hmm. right? Um, so that's the nihilistic view, and I think very few people actually accept that. Um, I don't know of any moral nihilists. I don't yeah, I was going to ask, are there any yeah. contemporary moral nihilists? Yeah, I don't know of any. <laughs> um, so that's one extreme version of moral skepticism. Mm -hmm. um, but then there are other versions, right? Another way of being a moral skeptic is you might be, uh, I think, a moral non-cognitivist, right? So moral skeptics will say there just aren't any true or false moral facts. Um, a non-cognitivist shares that view. A non-cognitivist is going to say there aren't any true moral uh there aren't any true moral claims, but the non-cognitivist adds, but that's not what we're trying to do when we're talking about ethics, right? When I make a moral claim, I'm not trying to state a fact. I'm doing something more like just expressing uh, an emotion or a motivational state, mm -hmm. right? So if I, if I were to say murder is wrong, the non-cognitivist says what I'm really doing is I'm saying uh, I'm expressing condemnation or disapproval towards murder. Right. Um, but the idea is that if I'm expressing condemnation, that's different from having a belief, mm -hmm. right? I don't believe, I'm not believing that murder is wrong. It's just like a feeling that you're expressing. Yeah, that's and right. it can't be assessed for truth or falsity. Exactly. Beliefs right. are the kinds of things that can be true or false. Mm -hmm. uh, an expression of emotion is not true or false. Right. It doesn't make sense to say, is, you, is, it true, is your anger true or false? But it does make sense to say, is your belief true or false? Exactly. Yeah. So right. non-cognitivists... Right, is going to say our ethical claims are really just kind of expressing our emotions. We're not really trying to state facts at all. Mm -hmm. um, You're right. Then the third one, the third kind of moral skepticism is moral justification skepticism. At right, least that's, that's how right. you call it. Yeah. yeah. So moral justification skepticism. This is the idea. Now we're getting away from nihilism. Mm -hmm. This would be someone who says that there are, uh, uh, there is such a thing as truth and falsity in ethics. Uh, ethical claims can be true or false. We can have beliefs about them, right? So I can believe 
that murder is wrong. And that could be a true or a false belief. But this skeptic says none of our moral beliefs are ever justified. Mm-hmm. That is, we never have good reasons for thinking any of our moral beliefs are true. Right. Um, and so this might be motivated The beliefs by, could be true, though. Right? They there, could be true. There could be objective yeah. moral truths. You could have beliefs about those truths. And those beliefs could accurately track those truths. But according to this skeptic, those beliefs just aren't justified. So we can't actually know right. whether a moral claim is true or false. That's right. Yeah. And so uh, it might be helpful here to think about uh, just an ordinary sort of belief that we would say is not justified. Right. So suppose that I just uh, I want to know um, whether it's going to rain tomorrow. And in order to figure out whether or not it's going to rain, I do what I always do. I go to my magic eight ball and I shake it up (laughs) and I wait and see what it says. And it says, yes, definitely. And so I form the belief that it's going to rain tomorrow. Mm -hmm. And that might even be true. Maybe it will rain tomorrow. But we would say that my belief is not justified because I didn't use a very reliable or good method for coming to that belief, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, this is, this is like when some, something really good happens in a person's life and they're like, oh, well, this is evidence that God exists. Right. <laughs> Whereas like, no, actually it's not. <laughs> You're discarding all of the horror and misery that uh, befalls other people's lives on a daily basis. Good. Yeah, so a lapse in reasoning as well, mm-hmm. like that example shows, is another way to have an unjustified belief. Right. And so if you're a moral justification skeptic, you think our moral beliefs are all like that. Right. So uh, here's one way in which you might be a moral justification skeptic. You might think that there is truth and falsity about ethics. We do have beliefs about it. But the way that we form our moral beliefs is just always really bad. Mm -hmm. Right. You might think, well, why do I have moral beliefs that I do? I just have these moral beliefs because these are the ones that I was raised with. Right. Or these are the moral beliefs that were instilled in me by my church, for mm-hmm. instance. And those beliefs being instilled in you by the church, that is just as unreliable, arguably, as consulting the magic eight ball That's to the problem. determine your moral beliefs. Exactly right. You know, you might think to yourself, well, it's only a contingent matter of fact that I was raised in the community I was raised in. You know, if I had been right. raised halfway around the world in a different community, I would probably have very different moral beliefs. Mm-hmm. And so reflection on that might lead you to think that my moral beliefs aren't really justified because I don't know that I can rely on uh, my community or my church or my parents to provide me with the correct moral beliefs. Yeah. This is, yeah, and this like this is just switching briefly to religion. This is what makes me such a skeptic about religion just because all the religions are mutually incompatible and if i'm if i'm a christian which i'm not and i'm looking at someone who was born i don't know a muslim say or a different religion and according to my religion they're going to hell because they're not following the right god well Mm -hmm. it's just by dint of luck that they were born where they were that they were they grew up with the belief systems that they did so by complete coincidence and dint of luck they're going to hell now and you just were fortunate enough to be born where you were and you're not going to hell, like that just seems astonishing to me mm-hmm. and undercuts just the plausibility of the different existing religions in my mind. Good, um, right? That's the exact same kind of argument applied to religion. And so I think that's, that's um, a really interesting kind of argument. And that's one reason why people might be skeptics about religion. It's also a reason I think for people to be skeptics about morality. Right. In this sense. Right. Yeah. Um, and so one thing that I'd like to note, uh, and this might be something you might 
be interested in talking about is that insofar as um, what I do in this paper uh, works to resolve moral skepticism, mm. I think probably it equally well resolves something like religious skepticism. Yeah, I do want to talk about this. Yeah, I want to get okay. into this. I guess, yeah, so before we jump in yeah. to the argument that you're making in the paper, just quickly, the fourth kind of moral skepticism that you note is moral knowledge skepticism. So that's where, if I'm understanding it correctly, um, moral realism could be true. We have beliefs about moral realism, right? They're not just expressions of emotion. They're actual beliefs. Mm -hmm. And furthermore, the beliefs are justified, mm -hmm. right? The moral beliefs are justified, but they still don't constitute knowledge. That's right. They still don't constitute knowledge. That's right. So this is, um, here's where we get back to something like the Matrix, mm -hmm. right? So if you think about the Matrix, uh, you're Neo walking around the city, and you believe that there's a, a building in front of you. Why do you believe that? Well, because uh, it's there's daylight, um, you haven't taken drugs recently, um, uh, your eyes are working just fine, uh, so you look and you see the building, and so you form the belief that there's a building in front of you. Um, that is a really well-justified belief, right? It's, it's formed on a very uh, reliable basis, your own perceptual system. Right. Um, and so that seems to be like a justified belief. Mm -hmm. Nevertheless, in the, when we're talking about the matrix, it's a false belief. Right. right. So this shows that even justified beliefs can be false. Right. Um, so this final version of moral skepticism, moral knowledge skepticism, allows that we have moral beliefs and that they are justified, but it denies that they are knowledge, mm -hmm. right? The justification we have is not enough right. for us to have knowledge. Yeah, so connecting the so-called Gettier problem and epistemology to what you're talking about, right? Yeah. So there is this question in epistemology, what is knowledge? And one of the most common responses to that question throughout history is knowledge is justified true belief, mm -hmm. right? You were just talking about, you, you know, you, the example that you just said illustrates that you can have justified beliefs mm -hmm. that are false, mm -hmm. and so therefore don't constitute knowledge. But you can also, according to this dude named Edmund Gettier who wrote this paper, mm -hmm. <laughs> that's caused a, like, this huge stir in philosophy, you can also have justified true belief that doesn't constitute knowledge, right? That's so right. even having a justified true belief is not a sufficient condition for knowledge, That's arguably. Right. Yes. And so now, so, yeah. yeah. And here would be just a, a simple example of that. Uh, let's talk about rain again, right? You know, I want to know if it's going to rain tomorrow, but instead of going to my Magic 8-Ball, I turn on the Weather Channel. Mm -hmm. right? It seems a lot more reliable. Yeah. And so I'm watching the Weather Channel, um, and they, the Weather Channel says that it's going to rain tomorrow. So I form the belief that it will rain tomorrow. Right. But here's what I don't know. When I turned on the TV, I thought I was looking at the Weather Channel, but actually it was a fiction movie. And Ooh. it was just a scene in the movie where there was a weather person. Mm -hmm. And they were talking about what the rain is going to be tomorrow That's in the right. fictional universe of the movie. Exactly. And so I thought that was a real weather channel, but it was just fictional. Oh, I see. And so that, uh, having seen that, not knowing it was fiction... My belief is still justified. I, it seems like I did everything I reasonably should have done to determine whether or not it's going to rain tomorrow. I did Reliable source of yeah. justification. Yeah. Yeah, I, I acted rationally. I, I looked at the, what I thought was the weather channel to figure that out. And so even if it does rain tomorrow, my mm -hmm. belief would be true and it would be justified. But it doesn't seem like it's knowledge because I only reached that belief by looking at a fictional weather report. Mm. Yeah. So justified true belief isn't sufficient for knowledge. Right. 
Okay, okay. So, so let's now let's turn to your main thesis now. Okay. Um, so correct me wherever I stumble here. So essentially, there's this philosopher named Pritchard. What's his first name? Duncan Pritchard. So Duncan Pritchard has this uh, solution to radical skepticism, this closure-based problem of radical skepticism. That's what it's called. Mm-hmm. And what you're arguing here is that his solution to radical skepticism can also be applied to domain-specific skepticism, and specifically to moral skepticism. That's but right. as you know, you might think that it also applies to religious skepticism, too. Mm-hmm. Um, so you're assuming for the sake of argument that Pritchard's solution to radical skepticism is sound, and you're saying, look, we can extend this even further mm-hmm. to these domain-specific kinds. Mm-hmm. So I guess first, what is this closure-based problem of radical skepticism? Yeah. Uh, first, I think I want to say something about why, or, or just to kind of set up the um, argument here, right? I, yeah. I want to say about radical and domain-specific skepticism and moral skepticism in particular, mm-hmm. the radical skeptical problem looks to be very different than the moral skeptical problem because the radical problem uh, is based on things like the matrix, Right, mm-hmm. you have to think about these really weird hypotheses to come to the conclusion that you don't know anything. Mm-hmm. But like the more, sci-fi thought experiments. Yeah, 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 and they're always going to be really kind of weird ideas. Mm-hmm. Um, but when it comes to moral skepticism, that's not so weird at all. Right. We have different motivations for moral skepticism. Mm-hmm. Just by looking around and seeing that so many people disagree about morality, that can start to lead us to become moral skeptics. And right. So it's not an unreasonable position at all. So it's almost like you have to do a lot of work, a lot of cognitive work to get to radical skepticism. Like, imagine if we are brains and vats. Yeah. But to get to moral skepticism, you don't have to do much cognitive work at all. All you have to do is, going back to what we were just talking about, note all of the disagreements in morality. Mm-hmm. That's right. right, yeah. So they have different motivations. And so then what I want to say is, nevertheless, a solution to radical skepticism can also work as a solution to moral skepticism. Right, despite the differences between the two. Yeah. Okay. Okay. That's helpful. Uh, so here's the radical skeptical problem. Mm-hmm. Um, I say that it's a problem uh, rather than a position because this is something that it, it, it reveals a problem with our own concepts, right? It shows that maybe there's something amiss about our own concept of knowledge. Uh, and so the problem comes in the form of three claims, each of which seems defensible, but which together they look to contradict each other. So mm-hmm. something's got to go. Right, or we have to dissolve the apparent tension. Right. Uh, so the first claim uh, is uh, basically the skeptical idea. You cannot have rationally grounded knowledge that you are not a brain in a vat. Mm-hmm. Right. You could be in the matrix. And that's plausible because of what we already said. Because if you were in the matrix, everything would be as it is now. That's right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. If you were in the matrix, everything would look to you the same way it does. So you can't rule out the possibility that you're in the matrix. Okay. Here's the second claim. If you cannot have rationally grounded knowledge that you're not a brain in a vat, then you also can't have rationally grounded knowledge that you have hands. Right. Right. If you don't know that you're not in the matrix, then you can't know that you have hands. Or whether there's a chair here or a table, or table here. Yeah. So it's yep. like, if you don't know whether you're not in the matrix, then you can't know anything, even exactly. the most ostensibly obvious claims. Exactly. Yeah. Right. And then okay. finally, uh, the, the final claim is just that, well, you can know that you have hands. You can know that there's a table here. 
Right, so that's independently plausible as well. It seems prima facie obvious that there's a table here. It seems yeah. absurd yeah. to deny that there is. A there's table. nothing more obvious than right. that there's a table here. So now you can see the problem, right? I know there's a table here. I don't know that I'm not in the matrix. But if I don't know I'm not in the matrix, how can I know there's a table? Right. So you, you have to deny one of these claims, essentially. Uh, you have to deny one of the claims, or you have to show that despite appearances, they're not, in con on, they're not conflicting with each other. Oh, okay, right. Mm -hmm. Right, and okay, so I guess, what's Pritchard's solution to this closure-based problem okay. in a few words? So Pritchard's solution, um, I think, is the latter kind that I just pointed at. We can show that these claims are not actually in conflict with each other. Mm -hmm. Um, this is what he calls an undercutting rather than an overriding solution to the skeptical problem. Mm -hmm. Now, Pritchard's solution uh, turns on what I think is a really insightful idea, drawing from uh, Ludwig Wittgenstein's uh, posthumous work on certainty. The idea is uh, that there are some propositions, some claims that are not subject to rational evaluation. Uh, these are what Pritchard calls uh, hinge commitments. Right. So these are commitments that we have um, which are not appropriately subject to rational evaluation. That means it's not appropriate for us to doubt them or to use them in inferences to arrive at other sorts of knowledge. They're not in the game of um, being reasons for or conclusions of mm -hmm. other things. Right, so they can't be the objects of rational evaluation. Mm -hmm. And this, so adopting this notion of a hinge proposition entails rejecting what you call the universality of rational evaluation thesis. So there's this thesis that um, there are no in principle limits on the range of a rational evaluation. Any proposition that you can put to the table can be the object of rational evaluation. That's and right. the notion of a hinge proposition denies that. According to that notion, um, no, there are some propositions that aren't the objects of rational evaluation. That's right. And I, I think it's worth saying about the this thesis, the universality of rational evaluation. I mean, that's coming from Pritchard as well. Mm -hmm. I think that's a thesis that probably most philosophers accept. Yeah, yeah. I would, I, I I think would say so yeah. off the top of my head. I think it's part of being a philosopher, or part of what it is to be a philosopher, is to subject everything to rational evaluation. Right. Right. That's what we do. Yeah. That almost is the game of philosophy. Mm -hmm. So there's like an implicit assumption on the half, the half of philosophers that they accept it. Yeah. And so Wittgenstein's idea that Pritchard is channeling here um, is that that's wrong. We cannot subject everything to rational evaluation. This is why I said, in a sense, um, there are some limits to skepticism. Mm -hmm. Here's where that limit comes into play. Right. A skeptical hypothesis is the kind of thing that doesn't really get into rational evaluation. And why is that? Uh, that's because it conflicts with our deeply held personal hinge commitments. Right, and so this is where we get to the solution of the radical skeptical problem. Mm -hmm. um, so we have personal hinge commitments. These are things that we hold. They're more certain than anything else. Right. And 
they because they're they're sort of the bedrock or the foundation of all rational evaluation. And because they're the bedrock of found rational evaluation in the first place, they cannot themselves be subjected to rational evaluation. Right. Right. So one example of a hinge proposition would be the claim that the proposition that I have hands. Exactly. I'm more certain of that than anything else. Mm-hmm. So that can't be, I can't deny that in a sense. Yeah. No, so does this get in, before the podcast started, we briefly talked about uh, Bishop Berkeley, Berkeley's uh, mm-hmm. solution to skepticism. It sounds like it's vaguely similar to this, right? So we also mentioned Descartes. Mm-hmm. So I think, I'm not sure whether... The modern formulation of skepticism derives from Descartes, but a lot of people cite Descartes, right? So he has this um, this thesis that we're not directly aware of uh, external objects, right? We're directly aware of mental representations, mm-hmm. and so the fact that there's this kind of intermediary process between world and perceiver leads to skepticism. How do we know that our perceptions accurately represent the world? And Berkeley looks at that and he says, skepticism is just so unpalatable of a view. Right, um, it's just so incredible. So he's going to deny any assumption that gives rise to skepticism. Mm-hmm. So he thinks, you know, I know that I have hands, and I know that the world exists more, way more than I am confident in any skeptical hypothesis. Mm-hmm. So he rejects the assumption that we represent, uh, mm-hmm. that we have these mental representations, and he says that no, we're directly aware of. Uh, external objects and he thinks that external objects just are bundles of perceptions so his response to my understanding is that his response to Descartes problem of skepticism kind of gives rise to his idealism and that's the view which he's famous for according to which there there really is no external world right the world just is fundamentally mental it's not fundamentally physical mm-hmm. sorry I know I'm going off on a kind of a tangent I'm just trying to c- connect things but um, so that okay so yeah I guess just close the loop on his problem yeah, so I, th- I think it's useful. That's going to be a useful comparison uh, because I think the solution that we're getting from Pritchard uh, concerning Wittgenstein is very different than the solution we get from Berkeley. Okay. Right. Um, so first, it seems that um, here's one part of Berkeley's response as you've construed it is that, well, look, I'm more, you know, I'm just, I, I know that I have hands, right? That's fundamental. So I have to reject anything that would lead to skepticism about that. Mm-hmm. That's not quite what Pritchard is up to here, okay? Right, because that could be this is that's sort of a, what's known as a Morian response, right? Going back to uh, the philosopher G. E. Moore. Okay, this is very this, helpful. Yeah, G. E. Moore has this very famous um, article, uh, "Proof of an External World," in which he purports to prove that there is an external world, contra Berkeley, mm-hmm. right? Um, and the way he does that is he says, um, "Look." Uh, Here's my proof. Here's one hand. He holds out his hand. <laughs> Here's another hand. He holds out his other hand. There are two hands. Therefore, there is an external world. Genius. Right. <laughs> um, and so this has been employed as a response to, or you can employ this as a response to skepticism. You can just say, look, come on. You know, let's just talk common sense. Yeah. Duh. I know that I have hands. We're just Duh, so much more I know certain. there's a table here. And if skepticism denies that then screw skepticism that mm-hmm. has to be wrong so more so it sounds like more the morian response and the Burke carlian response to descartes problem of skepticism 
they're fundamentally similar in that they're both claiming that, look, we're more certain of these propositions like I have hands than we are of any skeptical hypothesis. But they go different ways with that. Moore takes it to prove the existence of an external physical world, and Berkeley takes it to prove that there is no external physical world. It's just perceptions. That's right. Okay. Yeah, Yeah, that seems right. Very helpful. Um, But but Pritchard is up to something a little bit different. A little bit different. Uh, So things get a little bit complicated because... G.E. Moore's work was influential for Wittgenstein, who in turn is influential for Pritchard. Right. right? So we've got this kind of lineage. Lineage, right? Um, what I think Pritchard wants to do that's different from what Moore does mm-hmm. is the Moorean response is unsatisfying, right? If you just say, I know I have hands, so skepticism is wrong, goddammit, uh, that's not satisfying because you haven't explained why we should reject skepticism. Mm-hmm. Right, so a more satisfying response will be one that explains why it's um, rationally appropriate for us to reject skepticism, mm-hmm. and not just you know pound our fist on the table and say it's wrong. Right, I have hands. Yeah, yeah. right. Mm-hmm. So that that's what Pritchard's doing. Uh, so Pritchard, via Wittgenstein, via Moore, uh, this notion of these very certain fundamental claims plays a very important role. But we want to be able to explain why we are okay in rejecting skepticism Mm -hmm. and so that's where uh these hinge commitments come into play right and so hinge commitments are going to be things like the claim that i have hands right more was on to something about that right um but what i think pritchard is noticing and picking up on is that um this gives us a principled way to respond to the skeptic um just think for a minute how could rational evaluation be possible what makes it possible for us to consider different propositions and subject them to tests to try to figure out whether or not they're true or false. Wittgenstein's idea is that that's possible because there are more certain things that we use as tests. Yeah. Right. I can I can check whether or not to believe this thing in relation to this other thing that I hold to be more certain. Right. So it's almost like the game of rationality only gets off the ground on the assumption that there are these hinge propositions that ground all of these other rational. And these hinge propositions are themselves ungroundable. Exactly. Right? So there has to be like some, maybe in short, there has to be some bedrock for rationality. And this exactly. bedrock for rationality is constituted by these various hinge propositions. Good. And so maybe here, like, this is why it's called hinge epistemology. Mm-hmm. These, these hinge commitments, the reason they're called hinges is that the hinge has to stay put for the door to turn. Ooh. Right, that's that's the analogy, right? That's why you have that. And this is really why I was interested in talking with you, because when it comes to morality, I'm a firm believer that there are these hinge commitments in morality, and the game of, we've briefly conversed about this in the seminar, but Mm -hmm. the game of morality only gets off the ground in virtue of there being these moral hinge commitments. Um, Mm -hmm. But, so I guess before we get there, how do you, you, you develop these three criteria for as to whether something is a hinge commitment, right? Mm-hmm. So there's this huge question, okay, his solution's satisfying, but how do you know whether something's a hinge proposition, right? You can't just say this is a hinge proposition because that would be akin to more just pounding his fist on the table, right? There has to be some mm-hmm. rational criteria as to what constitutes a hinge proposition. So you lay out three, mm-hmm. if I'm not mistaken, right? So one, for something to be a hinge proposition, there is nothing more certain for S than P that could be used to rationally support it. Mm-hmm. Um, two, S's commitment to P 
is not directly responsive to reasons. Mm -hmm. And three, if S were to be shown that P was false, S would take herself to be radically and fundamentally an error, not just an error about P. Mm -hmm. So if a proposition meets those three criteria, then it satisfies as a hinge proposition. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, okay, yeah, so I guess turning now to moral skepticism. So you think that there are this hinge proposition solution can be applied to the domain of moral skepticism as well. Mm -hmm. Right. So, yeah, Pritchard's solution to the radical skeptic, skeptical problem, uh, turns on showing that claims such as that I have hands or that there's a table in front of me are not subject to rational evaluation. Mm -hmm. And so they can't be used as part of the skeptical problem, right? Because the skeptical problem moves from the fact that you can't know you're not a brain in a vat and infers, therefore, you can't know that there's a table in front of you, mm -hmm. right? The rational bridging claim. Yeah, the bridging claim says, if you can't know you're a, a brain in a vat, then you can't know that there's a table in front of you. Mm -hmm. But because we've denied the universality of rational evaluation, mm -hmm. we've said that claims like that there's a table in front of me right now uh, can't enter into that kind of a inference. And so that's what protects our um, everyday knowledge. Uh, I'm seeing now. I'm seeing how it's different and a little more nuanced and complex than the Morian response. You just can't make that inference. Mm -hmm. Because one of the embedded propositions in that conditional is not subject to rational evaluation. That's right. That's the idea. That's, that's the idea. In order to get okay. to the skeptical problem, it relies on inference, which is a form of rational evaluation. Which is a form of rational evaluation. Yeah, that's key. Inference is a form of rational evaluation. Yeah. Okay. okay. Uh, so that solution turned on showing that certain everyday claims are hinge propositions. Mm -hmm. So the solution to moral skepticism that I'm trying to work out here is just to say, well, look... I think if we have if we have any hinge commitments at all, of course we're going to have ethical hinge commitments. Yeah. Right. Our, our ethical commitments are among our most foundational. Yeah. And this course. is where I absolutely agree with you. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I mean, one, I guess there there could be different candidates for what's a moral hinge proposition, but what taking one from Sam Harris, he has this uh, the worst possible misery for everyone is bad. He kind of construes, he doesn't call it a hinge proposition, but that's yeah. one proposition. Like, right? So think about a world yeah. where everyone is suffering as much as possible, as long as possible, and there's no silver lining whatsoever. Every single conscious creature, right? That, if the, according to Sam Harris, if the word bad means anything, it applies there. Mm -hmm. And that idea that the worst possible misery for everyone is bad, we know that just as much as we know anything else right any other claim foundational claim like two plus two equals four mm -hmm. so the idea is that we have to pull ourselves up pull ourselves up by our bootstraps somewhere and we do so um by appealing to these hinge propositions so i just get so annoyed when people say well how do we know maybe the worst possible misery for everyone isn't bad it seems like for me yeah like the litmus test for moral theories mm -hmm. right a moral theory is plausible insofar as it conforms to these hinge propositions, mm -hmm. right? So it's not like um, it's not like the proposition the worst possible misery for everyone is wrong because utilitarianism is true. Mm -hmm. Rather, utilitarianism would be true because it conforms to that hinge proposition. So the game of morality only gets off the ground yeah. in virtue of being these bedrock moral claims, just like the game of rationality only gets off the ground in virtue of being these bedrock rational claims. Mm -hmm. um, right? So, I mean, that's kind of the idea, mm -hmm. right? Right. 
Yeah, yeah, we have these fundamental moral commitments, which I I take those to be tests for our moral theories. What would be a hinge, probably, a hinge ethical commitment for you? Uh, I actually quite like um, uh, Harmon's example. Right, so is that the torturing puppies one? Yeah, or, or kitties. kitties. Yeah. <laughs> so Harmon has this example where uh, you know, say you're walking down the street and you see a bunch of you know uh, young kids who, um, what these kids are doing is they've got a tank of gasoline and they're pouring gasoline onto a cat and then they light it on fire just mm -hmm. for fun, mm -hmm. just to pass the uh, time. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so I think a hinge ethical commitment that I have is I think it's wrong to pour gas on a cat and light it on fire just for fun. Right. Right. Uh, I don't see how there, that seems to be, that seems to me to be non-responsive to rational uh, evaluation. Mm -hmm. Right. In principle, there's not an argument you could give me that could sh convince me that it's actually okay to light cats on fire. Right. Um, and so that suggests to me that that's a, a moral hinge commitment. Mm -hmm. And if so, then we can leverage that as a response to certain forms of moral skepticism. Mm -hmm. And moral, and just uh, moral, not anti-moral realism, right? I'm not so, uh, I think I want to limit the results of what I'm trying to get at here. I'm not so sure that this um, shows or has any bearing on moral realism per se, I think we need different arguments for that. Okay. Because I think a moral non-cognitivist might say that, well, when you see the people pouring gas on a cat and igniting it, of course that elicits a very strong emotional response, and that's what's going on. Right, but a moral non-cognitivist is still a moral anti-realist. That's right, yeah. Gotcha. Okay, so I... Again, I'm in huge agreement with you here, but one potential worry that I have, I guess the biggest worry that I have that I wanted to bring to the table is, it seems like someone, a member of, of some domain, could erroneously claim that something is a hinge proposition, that it meets your three conditions, right? It's like, uh -huh. so, so take a, uh -huh. take a, mm, let's say a priest or something like that, and he says, look, uh, here's a hinge proposition. The Bible is the word of God, okay? The Bible is the word of God, well, how do I know that's a hinge proposition, you ask the priest? Well, because it meets your three criteria. There's nothing more certain that could be used to rationally support it. Mm -hmm. uh, it's my commitment to it. It's not directly responsive to reasons. Mm -hmm. And if I were to be shown to be false, I would be radically in error with respect to my thinking about the world, right? So it seems like someone could erroneously say something's a hinge proposition that meets these three criteria, and therefore you could kind of get rid of skepticism in all of these domains. But as you note in the paper, we ought to be skeptical in various domains, right? We ought to be skeptical about religion. So it's like you're extending Pritchard's solution to these domain-specific skeptical problems, but there is this worry that your solution could extend it too far into domains where we don't want to extend it, mm -hmm. right? That is a worry, right? Yeah. Uh, a couple of quick comments. First, there's, there's nothing in here uh, that either in Wittgenstein or in Pritchard or the way that I'm thinking about things, there's nothing that says that in order to respond to skepticism, you have to be able to know that some claim is a hinge claim for you, right? So many people, mm, okay. many of our hinge propositions, we don't know that they're hinge propositions for us. Mm -hmm. 
um, that doesn't have to be part of it. It just has to be that, in fact, we do have hinge claims, hinge propositions. You don't have to be self-aware of yeah. the fact that it is. Yeah, so the, in fact, a priest or a religious person might be self-deceived in the following sense. They might be self-deceived because they're, they have religious hinge commitments which are not responsive to rational evaluation, mm-hmm. yet they think that their um, religious beliefs are subject to rational evaluation. Right. So imagine someone who thinks that it is rational to believe in God. Mm-hmm. They think that we can persuade people that it is rational to believe in God. We can give arguments for it. Mm-hmm. In short, we can subject religious beliefs to rational evaluation. Right. Nevertheless, that very person might actually have religious hinge commitments. Right. Right. Their belief in God maybe isn't really responsive to reasons. So they're being they present themselves as though it is. So they're being inconsistent. Because they say, like, here's an argument for God. You can rationally get yourself there. But then if you try to challenge them, they're not going to be responsive yeah. to any reasons that you present that are in favor of God's non-existence. Right. Right. If you presented them with uh, an argument that ought to convince them, I suspect that for many people who are deeply religious, they will not change their belief. Mm-hmm. And I think what that shows is that those are really working as hinge commitments, but there's a little bit of self-deception going on if you think that your belief is entirely rational. Right. And, and so, yeah. That's the thing about rationality, right? It's not, if you are responsive to reasons, then if someone presents you a sound, rational argument, you will helplessly accept it if you're a mm-hmm. sufficient rational agent, right? Like if you follow the plot wherever the plot leads, then you'll accept whatever the conclusion is, even if you don't want it, mm-hmm. right? So to be rational, so that's like there's like there's no free will in rationality, <laughs> right? In, a, in an ideal rational inquirer, like there's no free will whatsoever, which is, um, which is just interesting to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, yeah. So that there's one thing about the religious part. Uh, the other comment I wanted to make was, you're absolutely right. We don't want this solution to skepticism to work too well. Right. right? Because then, I mean, what are we going to say about witches and about magic? Right, right, right. right. Um, you know, we want to be skeptical about that. I, I think that there is no such thing as a witch. Right. right? We don't want our ontology to expand rapidly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. To include witches. Uh, right. So we don't want this to overgenerate. I don't think it does. Uh, I mean, just to think about witches, for example... Um, I believe there's no such thing as a witch, uh, but I think that that is responsive to reasons. Right. You know, I mean, if if, if someone uh, did something that I could not explain any other way, uh, I don't know, maybe I could be convinced. Yeah. I guess I'm, I'm wondering, is it possible, you know, someone could agree with that, but then say the same thing about so-called moral hinge propositions, right? Well, maybe there is some way in which mm-hmm. what you take to be hinge propositions are responsive to reasons. What if it were shown to you that there is a God that's omniscient and, you know, it seems like uh, torturing this person or whatever, all this unnecessary suffering is bad, but actually God has this huge cosmic plan, right? And 
you can make which so he has reasons as to why there's this suffering mm -hmm. so your hint proposition that the suffering is bad actually is responsive to reasons once you're presented with uh this truth about god and the reasons that he has for it mm -hmm. I don't, i'm just in my head i see yeah uh for my own part i don't think i would accept that yeah no me neither so i mean yeah if, if i were thinking about this world where there's intense suffering all the time and if someone tried to say, explain to me that that wasn't bad because that's, you know, God had a reason for doing that. Mm -hmm. um, I'm more confident that there's, I'm more confident that the intense suffering in that world is bad than I am. Um, that God that, yeah. is, yeah, you're more confident that the intense suffering is bad than you are that God is is like righteous in his reasons like it's yeah. maybe god just an immoral agent though because i know that that's bad mm -hmm. so even if he's using this as a kind of instrument to bring about his divine plan then god is an immoral actor yeah actually this sense. is this is actually a really interesting take on the problem of evil yeah right, right. so right you know it's some people response. might argue against the existence of god by saying look god uh conceived of as an all-knowing all-powerful all-good being mm -hmm. can't exist because um, if he did, there wouldn't be needless suffering. Right. It's clearly, like, there is needless suffering. Yeah, so just to spell that, uh, and, to say that God's omniscient, to say that God's all-knowing, omnipotent, God is all-powerful, omnibenevolent, God is all-good. So if God's all-knowing, he would know how to eliminate suffering in the world, mm -hmm. un needless suffering. If he's all-good, he would want to eliminate suffering in the world. And if he's all-powerful, he would have the power to eliminate suffering in the world. Mm -hmm. But yet, there exists so much needless suffering in the world, meaning that God can't exist. Or at least God, under this construal of omniscience, omnibenevolence, omnipotence, mm -hmm. which is usually how God is construed in the philosophy of religion. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah, and so... But yeah, the one response is what we just said, right? Yeah, and so someone might come back and say, well, all the suffering you're pointing to, it's not needless because God exists. So, so there must be a reason for it. It's a bullshit response. Well, I think what's happening here is we're getting <laughs> conflicts between hinge commitments that people hold. Mm. So I'm more confident that that suffering is wrong and bad and shouldn't happen yeah. than I am of the existence of an all-powerful, all all-knowing all-loving God. Right. Someone else might be more confident in the existence of an all-knowing, all-powerful, all-loving God than they are in the idea that that suffering is bad. It's bad, yeah. So yeah, it's a conflict between hint propositions. Oh, that's interesting. I've never construed it in those terms before. Mm -hmm. So I guess, what do you do when you have that kind of conflict between hinge propositions? Because I know what you're going to say, you know, you and I are going to say, well, no, ours are the real hinge propositions. These people are self-deceived. Uh -huh in the way that you talked right. about, but they're going to say the same thing about us. Is there any yeah. potential way that we could bridge that gap with the religious person who would take that point of view? Yes, there is a way to bridge the gap, but it's not going to be done by argument. This is where argument gives out. Hmm. Um, okay. When it comes to, and I think this is where I think the project that we get from hinge epistemology becomes really practically important for the real world. Okay. Right. And not just philosophy. At a certain point, and I'm sure you've had this experience, I've had this experience, I think everyone's had this experience, you're, um, you disagree with someone about something, and you hit a point where nothing you can say to each other will convince the other person. Mm -hmm. That's the point where it, you have to stop arguing. And what's needed is not a change in argument. What's needed is a change in the way of life. Mm -hmm. 
right? Um, so it's kind of like if if like I was just watching um, this documentary on Netflix called White Right, and it was this uh, journalist who is a Muslim, and she was infiltrating the kind of white nationalists in the South, white racist Mm neo-Nazis. And a lot of these people, you know, argument breaks down Mm -hmm. when you're trying to convince these people to not be racist or whatever. But a lot of times, yeah, as you say, you just have to change their way of life or expose them to new ways of life or new people. So a lot of, once these white nationalists um, came into contact with her, the journalist, and started to befriend her and talk to her, they realized that, oh, not all Muslims are bad because they've never really been exposed to those kinds of people before. So what it takes is actually being exposed to the people that you hate. Exactly. And realizing that they're not all bad. So that's not a matter of argument. That's a matter of actually getting into contact with those human beings. Exactly right. Right. And this goes back to Wittgenstein. Um, I'm not going to quote him correctly, but he says something along the lines of... um, uh, Behind agreement or shared judgment is a shared way of life, mm-hmm. right? Um, yeah, that's great. Yeah, and so I think what that means is if you want to convince or if you want to change the white nationalists, if you want to maybe um, change someone's mind about their belief in God, at a certain point you're not going to do it by arguing. You're going to do it by um, changing how you interact with them, or you know, trying to change their way of life to get them to come to have new experiences yeah right i feel like this whole discussion kind of casts philosophy in a potentially bad light because i feel like so many philosophers have these brute you know going back to that Wittgensteinian quote right like they have this worldview that derives from their way of life or that derives from fundamental intuitions that they have and a lot of times I feel like rational argument between philosophers breaks down, mm-hmm. right? Just because it gets, it ends up being just this battle of brute intuitions. And, you know, <laughs> supposedly, uh, if you follow the argument where it leads, you can change your mind. And philosophers are supposed to be stereotypically the most open-minded people. And yet there are so many philosophers who I've read and who I come into contact that, you know, just have these positions that they just kind of dig into the trenches, you mm-hmm. know? And so it seems like rational communication doesn't work as much as it's advertised to work in philosophy a lot of times. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. And I think that just by nature, philosophers are generally committed to the universality of rational evaluation right. idea. Absolutely. <laughs> right. Uh, I think most philosophers just think that any everything can be rationally evaluated. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that's kind of part of the problem here, mm-hmm. right? Philosophers get into these arguments and they just keep arguing because that's the only tool they know. Right, without realizing that maybe not everything can be rationally evaluated. That's right, yeah. I guess one, going back to the trying to bridge the gap between the two competing hinge propositions. Yeah. Right, so your response is, well, this is where rational argument breaks down. We're going to have to expose these religious people to a new way of life or something like that, right? Maybe expose a religious person to a bunch of needless suffering, you know, and make them see how bad this suffering is. Or I mean, not, not I'm not I, saying... I, let I can't endorse that. <laughs> Let me rephrase that. I'm not saying inflict suffering upon the religious people. <laughs> I'm not advocating for genocide against religious people here. I'm saying show them a documentary or something uh, about factory farming, you know, like something like this. Um, uh, to try to get them to realize that the hinge proposition that all this needless suffering is wrong outweighs their hinge proposition that God exists. But 
right? So there's a way that you could expose them mm -hmm. to different things to try to get them to change their hinge proposition. But couldn't, again, couldn't the religious people do the same thing to you? Yes. Couldn't they kind of indoctrinate you into their way of life and try to make you see that God does exist and that you should accept their hinge proposition, mm -hmm. that there is this omnipotent, omnipotent, omni whatever God, right? And that's a good God, and that's the hinge proposition. Yes, they could do that. Um, I would want to resist the talk of indoctrination, though. Okay. Um, I think... I think the indoctrination talk doesn't give enough credit to the amount of agency that we have. Um, so I think you can try to expose, say, a religious person, you might try to expose them to different kinds of suffering in the hopes that that will start to change their experience and change the way they see the world. Right. But really, it comes down to them, right? It's up to them how they want to interpret what they're being shown. Mm -hmm. uh, same, same with you. Right, uh, someone can expose you to new experiences, but it's down to you how you make sense of that. Right. So, uh, but then it seems like whether something doesn't that make hinge propositions arguably problematically subjectivist or something like that. Like, I just I can't I can't get over the worry that there is this. Mm -hmm. Uh, relativistic concern with respect to hinge propositions. Right. Like, how can we actually bridge this gap? Like, how do we know whether something definitively is a yeah. hinge proposition from an objective point of view? Well, so first of all, um, whether or not something is a hinge commitment is not an objective matter. It is a relative matter. Okay. Uh, different people can have different hinge commitments. Okay. Um, different propositions can play the hinge role for different people's lives. What makes it a hinge commitment is the role that it plays in your cognitive economy. Right. What makes it a hinge proposition is that it is the foundational thing in your practice of rational evaluation. Right. And so that means that what is a hinge commitment can vary from person to person. That is a subjective element to it. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think you're, it, it sounds to me like maybe you're asking for a solution to something that I think isn't a problem. Okay. Right, because I think it's just a fact of human life that well, we do have these kinds of fundamental disagreements. So I think this, this actually does accurately portray the way that we do uh, interact with each other. And so it's just kind of a, a false promise to think that, I don't know, uh, there's one okay. correct yeah. way of doing it. But I guess, I mean, so just going back to the bedrock moral hinge yeah. propositions, don't there have to be some objective truths about what those hinge propositions are like i guess yeah let's let's put it this way okay. i think there are objective moral truths mm -hmm. right there are some moral claims that are objectively true yeah um but not everyone has to have those propositions as in their hinge commitments i think mo i think my problem is i'm Attribute. I'm thinking that your solution applies to ontology. Like again, I'm, right. I'm assuming that your solution applies to uh, not only a solution to moral skepticism, but also implies that moral anti-realism is false. Good, good, but you're good. only working within the domain of epistemology. That's right. You're not working within the domain of ontology, and I'm thinking right. that you are, and, and the, kind of pressing you on that. I think that's where. That's exactly right. And yeah. uh, Pritchard's aware of this as well. So Pritchard has a a paper where he talks about epistemic relativism. 
And so uh, on this hinge proposition picture, what we get is we do get a form of epistemic relativism, but it's not truth relativism. It's not truth relativism. People can have uh, hinge commitments that are false. That's possible. Mm -hmm. And that can be unfortunate. You know, you and can yet, think about the white nationalists. They might have uh, a hinge commitment to some of the ideas of uh, racial superiority. Mm -hmm. And if so, then it's um, rational for them to reject um, uh, skepticism about that idea. Right. So that hinge proposition can still function to alleviate skepticism for them. That's right. Even though that hinge proposition is wrong. That's right. So it, it's rational for them to reject skepticism about racial superiority. Nevertheless, it's just false that, say, white people are superior to other races. Mm -hmm. Right. And so in a way, I think that's a really kind of a sad situation. Yeah. Um, and it also explains why argument is not going to be very effective with this person. If we want to change their hinge commitment, we have to intervene with their way of life. Yeah. And I just, I feel like that just is the most effective way, generally speaking, to change another person's mind. It really became salient to me while I was watching this documentary mm. a couple of days ago. Mm. You know, it's, you have to expose these people to new ways of life. Rioting against them or protesting yeah. against them, that's just reinforcing their negative conception of the other. That's right, yeah. And I, I think we can do it in ways that are respectful, too, right? It's not just about changing their mind. Yeah. You know, because we could do that by hypnotizing them or something. Yeah. Right? It's about opening them up to new experiences, but recognizing that they have to be the ones who start to interpret those in a new way. Yeah. And I feel like it's also about having compassion and sympathy for their predicament. Going back to the beginning of the conversation, yeah. realizing that by no dint of their own, do exactly. they have this hinge proposition. They were born in this white nationalist culture most of the times and have been... Uh, force-fed these beliefs since they were the time that they were children. If you were, if you were them, you would be them, right? So just recognizing that fundamental mm -hmm. fact, I feel like it necessarily induces this sense of compassion and this willingness mm -hmm. to try to uh, engage with them, you know, instead of just saying like, fuck you, neo-Nazi or whatever. Right. Um, uh, that really connects well with where I want to go in the future with this research. Oh, per yeah, right? perfect. So, yeah, it's a per the, perfect way to end it. Let's yeah, it. yeah. The, the next thing that I want to start working on is um, taking these ideas and seeing what they might tell us about, well, conviction and humility, right? These yeah. kinds of notions. Because um, that we have certain convictions, of course, uh, certain very strong convictions about moral ideas, that's just what this picture tells us. Right, or hinge commitments. They're the things that are the most certain. But once we recognize that different people have different hinge commitments, then we start to see that we have to engage in public discourse in a different way. Right. Right. We can't just argue with people all the time. We have to do something else. Right. You can't just show them the modus ponens argument for yeah. why they're wrong. See? If P, then Q. That's Q. Not, right, right. <laughs> or P. Uh, at the same time, I think this might encourage some humility on our own part when you start yeah. to realize that my most firmly held convictions. Right. Well, they could be wrong. That doesn't mean I should be skeptic. Yeah. Right. Nevertheless, I should realize that there is that possibility. I feel like this is insp the point. Yeah, uh, that seems like such a good direction for future research, and also such a timely direction. Mm -hmm. Right. Like this is an area of philosophy that I think really does have practical importance. Mm -hmm. You know, because philosophy is criticized a lot. 
for not really having any bearing on the real world, but especially in the domain of politics nowadays. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. there seems to be this yeah. growing hostility between the political parties. But once you realize, oh, maybe they have hinge commitments that I don't. Maybe all people that voted for Donald Trump aren't racist. You know, maybe I'm in my own ideological bubble. Right. Just kind of, yeah, realizing that more, I feel like is really needed in today's political climate. Couldn't agree more. You want to end it there? Anything else that you want to bring to the table? Uh, I guess a final reflection that I wanted to add about about religion specifically, because you were asking about that as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. A lot of the discussion we just had about political discourse. Right. I think that also reflects my sort of views on uh, religion as well. Right. So I'm I'm not at all religious. Me neither. Nevertheless, I respect people who are religious, and I don't assume that there's any kind of... I don't automatically assume that there's a sort of irrationality going on. Because yeah. if these people have mm. hinge commitments in the belief of God, which I think is entirely reasonable, yeah. then um, it makes sense that uh, they can reject religious skepticism. Right. You know? And in a way, I think that's makes for a much more mature way of going about talking about religion with people. Yeah, because I, I, that's a good point. Because I feel like a lot of days religion is kind of just frowned upon nowadays there is this assumption that on the part of a lot of people i don't know what you call them humanists that atheists um that religious people are just kind of fundamentally irrational you know they have this irrational belief in god and we're not even going to take them seriously but that might not be a pragmatic way or even just a real inaccurate way of viewing things right it's like just as they have a hinge commitment in the belief of god some philosophers have a hinge commitment to the universality of rationality thesis, right? That itself is a kind of hinge commitment, maybe. I don't know. That's a weird kind of self-contradictory view. Yeah. You have uh, an irrational commitment to the idea that everything can be rationally evaluated. Yeah. I think that's a real kind of contradiction. Yeah, you're right. But yeah, I I take your point. Um, And I myself have kind of fallen into that trap. But uh, yeah, like a lot of times once you realize that you know, if you were to have that, there, there's not irrationality across the board, right? They just have this one hinge proposition. And if you were to buy into that proposition, then from there, that's their bedrock. From there, they're playing the game of rationality. They're that's like, right, oh, yeah. well, if this, like, let's take the Bible. If the Bible yeah. is the word of God and I accept that, then the most rational thing to do would be to live my life in conformity mm-hmm. with this book, mm-hmm. right? So there's actually... A ton of rationality there mm-hmm. on the side of the religious person. They're extremely rational. Mm-hmm. It's just that their rationality flows from this different bedrock hinge proposition. That's right. Yeah. Which goes against the common way of viewing people as just like completely deluded by religion or something right. like this. Yeah. That's a good point. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, I really enjoyed this conversation, man. I yeah, feel like you definitely clarified a ton of things for me throughout this conversation. It was um, good for me to talk through it as well. 